Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real conversations that celebrate the people, ideas, and companies that stand out. We're sponsored by my friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. I also want to tell you about our new marketing podcast. It's quite different than this one. Most episodes are short, focused on one topic, and it's really about the mindset and the strategy for winning. Go to Lockhead.com to check out Lockhead on Marketing or search for Lockhead on Marketing wherever you get legendary podcasts. All right, on this episode, we have the amazing Jules Pieri. And um, she is a fascinating woman. She's the first designer to graduate from Harvard Business School. She was named by Fortune Magazine as one of the most powerful women entrepreneurs. She's the co-founder and CEO of the product launch platform, The Gromit. And they are pioneering a category they call citizen, the citizen commerce movement, which is focused on reshaping how consumer products get discovered, shared, and purchased. We have a fun and insightful conversation about how to create legendary products, uh, how to make sure those products succeed in the world. Jules also has a wonderful new book out, which I really enjoyed reading, and I think you would too. The book is called How We Make Stuff Now. Go to Lockhead.com for more on Jules and the show notes for this episode. Oh, and when we start talking, you'll hear us talk about one of the most innovative and uh, smile-inducing products I've heard about for a long time. It's something called the Squatty Potty. Now, as Joy Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. There's one I wanted to ask you about off the top, if I could. Sure. The squatty potty. Yeah. (laughs) So my co-founder found that company in the back of beyond at a trade show. We um, were just starting to even go to trade shows and the newest vendors at trade shows get the booth by the bathrooms or the hot dog stand. Nobody pays attention to them. It's really lonely. And she comes back. With in that in this case, she even had a sample, which we don't usually have quickly, and said, "You're not, you know, it's a great company. You're, you guys are going to love this." And I will admit, we all kind of said, "Huh? Seriously? What happened to you at that trade show, Joanne Squatty Potty?" But it was uh, an emerging family company. Nobody knew about them yet before they had done their wonderful marketing and the you know, the science, if you will, like the process of elimination could use a little help from a mechanical device, this stool, and it really works. We tested it as we do everything. And it, uh, I hate to interrupt you, Jules, but you were an early beta tester of the squatty potty. Is that what you just told me? Yes. Yes, it's true. Um, yeah, and the family's really excited. Our our community responded because, you know, if you had seen it just in some store, you'd never even stop, right? And they hadn't done any marketing yet. So we did the job we always try to do, which is translate some kind of innovation to a curious audience. And of course, 
Uh, I haven't used the product, but I assume it's an effective product. Yes, because, all right, we're going there. You're, you know, growing up, you're a caveman. You're a Neanderthal person somewhere. Think about how you would have eliminated, um, you know, that sort of bird meat or cheetah meat that you just ate. Think about how you would have done that. You had no toilet. You're squatting. Right. And there's a literally a geometric configuration of your insides that works better if you're squatting. So we're not going to start squatting, but this is the close you're going to get elevating your feet. And the funniest thing about this insight to me uh, is uh, I'm a lot, I'm a guy that likes to do backcountry camping and skiing. And of course, when you're in the backcountry, there is no toilet. And I like pooping in the woods. I like yeah. squatting. It makes me feel like a Neanderthal bear. There's something <laughs> primordial, primordial and satisfying about it. And so I think I need to get a squatty potty. Yeah. Like, you, you know, you can't camp every day. You've got a job to do. So you can have your private little moment of Neanderthal man every day. I love that idea. So I, I got to get me a squatty potty. And I just want to thank you on a personal level for bringing that company to market. And I also wanted to ask you as a former CMO, Squatty Potty to me did a legendary job of what you could think of as category design, pioneering a new category. And at the same time, legendary branding. You talk in your book about naming and, and, and sort of how do, you, how do you market a product so that it can really stand out. And of course, the name is awesome. And anybody who's seen those early ads, those early videos, you know, many of them went viral on the internet. I mean, they are, they are as hysterical as any marketing you've ever seen and super memorable. And they, and they make you go, I should try a squatty potty. So could you give me a little insight as to how they thought about the category and then the name and the advertising and, you know, the whole packaging of launching the new category and, and brand? Well, that's, that. That's really insightful of you, actually, Chris, that we're quite often challenged with that of starting a new category. Nobody's searching for, you know, elimination aid other than laxatives, right? Nobody's imagining that this stool exists and they're just, you know, could only buy it, they would. Um, so I think these companies have to be as bold as possible. And, um, and to be fair, they hired a great agency, Harmon, um, to, to get the ads done. And they had more vision and more courage than most companies tend to have in the early stages. You know, it's a super insecure stage of a company and you're going to pay what to do that. And, you know, your reputation's aligned with these kooky ads, right? But I tend to think of it as what do you have to lose? The worst thing is suffering in obscurity, right? Like you, you need to be known. It's so hard to cut through in a crowd, crowded world. And, and quite often our makers are creating a category. We have another product I'm thinking of called Bondic, created by, oh, um, by Bondic, B-O-N-D-I-C. I know where your head's going, what? your mind's going right now. It's not there. I just um, wanted to hear what you said <laughs> there, Jules. <laughs> well, since we're sort of in this, lower half of the body. I get it. But, um, Bondic, it's, uh, it's an adhesive that you cure with the UV light. And if you've ever had that happen in the dentist chair, um, you'll understand that there are special adhesives and materials in dentistry that a dentist, uh, realized could be applied to 
basically gluing hard things together, you know, the plastics, things that are sometimes hard to glue together. And um, so it's this little wand with the UV light and it cures in six seconds called Bondic. But nobody's looking for and, that. And you no. use it for what bonding, what types, types of things, Jules? Uh, like jewelry or um, you could do any kind of plastics. You can do ceramics. I've used it. Um, oh, man, I just used it the other day. What did I use it on? It was a case for something that had cracked and it was plastic. So there is super glue, but this is a little bit uh, less crazy. Um, doesn't glue your fingers together and equally effective. The curing is is part of the reason, right? You don't have to hold it forever. It's going to cure in six seconds. So have they reimagined the new category of glue? Is that how I should think of it or how should I think? Yeah, yeah in that um, this UV cured glue is the new idea, right? No, but nobody's searching for that. So we often find if we look at the Google traffic uh, for a product, um, nobody's looking for the brand. I mean, Bondic is not as memorable as Squatty Potty. So even if you've heard of it, you're probably not going to search um, after we've introduced it to the community. You're not going to search for Bondic. You're going to search by what the heck did Gromit tell me about this? And you're probably going to re remember UV light or UV cure, UV adhesive. And search that. And so we'll see like zero search for search traffic for something like Bondic or Squatty Potty before we launch it. And then slowly we'll start to see category search, category search, because names, names are usually not as memorable as descriptions. Yes. And, you know, this is something that I spent the vast majority of my professional life on, which is the distinction when most people say marketing there is a giant set of undeclared assumptions that go with that word. And the biggest probably is our job is to present features and benefits such that we capture demand. And the intuitive thing that would seem smart that we get taught in business school is you want to position yourself in a large market, somewhere where there's lots of demand and you can capture some percentage of that demand. That's what most people think of when they think about marketing. And the aha, of course, is there's no legendary marketer, innovator, or creator ever who did that. So there's a big distinction between capturing demand and creating it. And of course, right. the legends do what many of your entrepreneurs and inventors do, which is they're creating a new category. And so I love to hear what you're saying around, in the beginning, nobody's Googling these things. But then as we begin to educate the world to think about new ways of, I was not going to say bondage, but bonding things <laughs> <laughs> and new ways of pooping, then all of a sudden, uh, as, as interest in the idea, i.e. the category emerges, they're going to go straight to a bondic or straight to squatty potty because by definition, if you design the category, you're best positioned to dominate it. And as I went through your book, you know, in a lot of ways, what I was, what I felt like I was reading, Jules, was a product-oriented perspective on kind of how to make all of that happen, how to how to have your invention and bring it to the world in a way that it connected and and could be unique and and, and sort of carve out a distinct place. But I'm curious how you think about it. Well, what what I could see uh, before forming the company was um, this, these huge shifts in technology, uh, the internet alone, but things like 3D printing, 
we're going to enable a huge new class of entrepreneurs for physical products. A little parallel to what happened in the software industry a couple years earlier, right? If creative people have access to inexpensive tools, they will use them. And physical products have kind of a joy. They're less abstract, for sure, than software. So they're going to inspire more people to participate. But the collision with reality that I saw coming was that the reality was that these brilliant products were going to hit a really crowded world and have a hard time breaking through at retail, digitally, in consumers' minds. And that's the problem is how to crack. And then the way we do it, you kind of hit on it. A lot of times um, when you, you've created a product, and I've done it, my, I've made this mistake I'm about to say in my own business. You're so close to it that you, you've lost track of what matters to people. You've lost track of what to say about, to get the, to pique their interest. So quite often say, let's, let's pick uh, Squatty Potty um, because we've been talking about it. Let's say we met them and they just figured out how to make it in wood instead of plastic. They would probably go on and on. They didn't do this, but go on and on in any kind of, pitch about how it's now available in wood and and we're like back up buddy like nobody even knows that you exist and why they should care we're going to talk about that and the wood is is inconsequential it's a little bit like um let's say when facebook originated founders have a tendency as and this is the mistake i've made to want to describe their entire vision right like where they're going what they've done so far what's next and Mark Zuckerberg was smart. He said, I can help you find out stuff about people, people you know, stuff you couldn't get at. Like he didn't say initially, like my vision is to have a utility, as he started saying later, or a platform or a social connection or a social network. He said, I can help you find out stuff about people you know. And often consumer products needs that tra- need that translator too. At that level of simplicity. Yeah. I'm also curious. Um, uh, my wife, Carrie, said to say thank you to you for uh, her soda stream, which she's completely in love uh, with. Yeah, great product. And again, legendary product. Uh, I don't know much about the company. Uh, you'll tell us, maybe you'll tell me here. Um, but also, insanely great category creation and design because. I don't know if there were people doing what they were doing before. It doesn't matter because, of course, the perception is what matters. So my perception is they invented not just the product, but a whole new paradigm for getting sparkly water in your house and doing it in a more hopefully environmental way because you're not using all this packaging and you know and then you can have flavors and you know the 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 what what I would call point of view behind the product that is the true north of the product becomes clear once you sort of see it and begin to sort of you, as an individual you can put together in your mind what the inventors might be thinking but I'm curious I would love for you to take me a little bit behind the scenes because it's not obvious that a product like that could a create a category and be become a massive brand. Yeah, that one um, was unusual because that was actually a company that had gone more or less dormant, an Israeli company. It was not a brand new company, but it was uh, had new ownership and was looking to actually relaunch essentially. So, and, and relaunch in the U.S. And it came to us through one of our community members, a man named Omar Qadari, who, um, 
to this day is kind of an environmental warrior. This is his, you know, passion and sustainable living. He'd been a software developer, uh, actually a video game developer, sold his company and, and uh, developed a new passion. And um, so his angle on SodaStream and bringing it to us, and again, this is well before it was in Bed Bath & Beyond, before you could trip on it in every big box store, um, was that angle, the environmental angle. SodaStream was unusual because it actually has three points of entry and very different ones for different people. So Omar, it's environment. Other people, it would be convenience, essentially, right? Schlepping. No more schlepping, whether it's returning the recyclables or just getting the products home. And then the third angle was... And I hate to um, interrupt you, Jules, but on the schlepping side, hey, carrying water is heavy. Yeah. Right? Like, I I love these. And I'm not a big uh, sparkly kind of water guy, but I've also fallen in love. So I've, I've gotten more into it since we got the soda stream. And I've also fallen in love with these LaCroix. Yes. You know, you go buy two boxes of LaCroix. No, I'm a big guy. I can carry them. But if you want four boxes of LaCroix, like there's hauling water around seems like a dumb idea. I have to admit here, true story. I have a soda stream and we buy those cans. Um, it's kind of like to suit my mood or, or, or whether guests or, you know, there are different reasons we might want cans, but my partner drew completely objects to the existence of these cans in our lives because we have a soda stream and he hates the schlep because he loves going to like farmer's markets and he has to now go to another type of store. So in our household life, these are always on the grocery list, but the only time they ever bought, he does all the grocery shopping is when I am the exceptional person going grocery shopping. He pretends it's not on the list every week, <laughs> every week. Right. But they get home because of me sometimes and it's a pain in the neck. Right. They're, Although they're you home. do point out uh, something fascinating. My buddy, uh, Eddie Yoon, who wrote the awesome book, super consumers, uh, he's sort of the category guru to the fortune 100. Um, one of the things he points out is that if you're a super super consumer of a category and there's all these sort of subcategories or niches within a bigger category, in this case, seltzer water or soda water, then to your point, you might have different use cases of jewels where sometimes a soda stream is exactly what you want. But there's that crack they put in the LaCroix that means that every once in a while you got to have one of those and maybe like a Perrier too or whatever. And so... Uh, in this sort of sub niches in this mega category called seltzer water, there diff- there might be different niches or use cases. And if you're a super consumer, you might actually um, it might not be an either or; it might be an and. I've never heard of that, but that's exactly what you're describing here for me. Like, because it, it, it's not entirely rational to me that that I behave the way I do around this category. But I must be a super user, right? Yeah, I'm like that as it relates to beer. Wait, wait a minute. So are you saying that you have a tap at home, plus you schlep beer, plus you go out with your friends for beer? What do you mean? I don't have a tap, uh, but I do do the schlep uh, you know, with one of those, um, why am I blind? Growler. Growler, thank you. Uh, yeah. Where you can go to local breweries. I live in Santa Cruz, California, and we have, there's a law here that says that every 15 days, a new craft brewery must open. <laughs> and so... We're, we're just, we have tons of awesome beer. So yeah, I love to take a growler and take that home and uh, buy beer. And I, I go to restaurants based on whether or not they have good draft beer. And so, yes, there's multiple use cases um, and, and enjoy all of them for different reasons. Makes sense. Yeah. So um, you've been doing this grommet business. Remind me when you started. 
October 20th, 2008. And it seems like you've had an incredible track record of taking um, what in some cases might seem like off the wall ideas and turning them into products and turning them into mega new categories and brands that dominate those products. And now you've written this wonderful book about all of that. And so what are the big things that you, you know, if I was a young entrepreneur and I was sort of working on an invention and I wanted you to synthesize the learnings uh, that you have, what would be the key things that you would first tell me? You alluded to a couple of them. Um, first of all, I really do want people to make sure that there's a there there for their product, a large problem or need out there. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't do the spade work you should do at that phase to figure out if, if, if it's a niche tiny thing or only you have the problem or it's bigger. And that requires talking to people who are not, who don't love you, essentially people, strangers, it requires looking at data. Sometimes it's impossible to prove, frankly, you can't always prove that there's a need. So I'm not saying it's a foolproof thing you can, you can accomplish, but you sure as heck should try because if you're going to throw your life over, which you will, if you're an entrepreneur for this product, you'd like to know you're not the only one who wants it and that there's some demonstrable need. That would be number one. Um, so, so before you keep going on this one, you're yeah. on one that I think is so important. Um, I think that the concept of product market fit has had an unintended consequence of becoming one of the more dangerous ideas in business. And the reason I say that is, um, there's the sort of traditional approach, which is we're going to show our new carbodingulator to people. And if they like it, we'll build it or we'll build more of it or we'll do what we're, we're going to go do with it. And if they say they don't like it, then we don't have a good idea. And that, that, that idea of product market fit speaks to that. I, th I think a lot of entrepreneurs and inventors go there with it. And then there's the Steve Jobs paradigm, which is they don't know what they want until we tell them. And so category creators and, and, and truly breakthrough entrepreneurs, inventors sort of have to find that place where what they're doing is a breakthrough, addresses a problem, maybe in a different way or in a problem we didn't think about, Squatty Potty being a great example. And now you sort of have to teach the world that you've uncovered this need that they didn't think about, which then opens their eyes to maybe there's a different way to poop or maybe there's a different way to have seltzer water at home. But in the beginning, it's not intuitively obvious. You know, my favorite example, Jules, is um, by way of example, do you know how long it took for the wheel to be used as a transportation device? No, no idea. 300 years. Whoa. It was originally invented for pottery. Oh, no one turned it. And no one flipped it over and said, hey, what if we used it for transportation? And so my argument to entrepreneurs and creators of all kinds is, um, legendary products don't speak for themselves. Sometimes people intuitively get it, but many times they don't. And the more of a breakthrough it is, the more education that's required. And so um, this product market fit idea, which is essentially, you know, leave the, leave the dogs in the room with the food. And if they eat it, you got a winner. And if they don't, you got a loser, I think is really dangerous because to your point, when I asked you about Squatty Potty, you gave me the POV around how we originally used to do this and how our bodies are tuned to this. And now we've evolved to this place where we don't do it. And now we got to use this thing to do it. You gave me the raison d'etre by framing the problem and telling me the story about the solution. And so you're educating me as to a new way to think about 
uh, going for a poop or a new, or in the case of uh, uh, SodaStream, a new way to think about getting fizzy water at home. You framed the problem, which then got me to think about the solution called fizzy water in a different way, which leads to the product and then ultimately leads to the brand. And so I, with all that said, how do you counsel inventors and entrepreneurs to, on one hand, it's wise to listen to what customers say. I'm not, I'm not being silly about that. But at the same time, if you have a breakthrough, sometimes it's not intuitively obvious and it takes a description, a point of view uh, to educate the world, to get them to consider a whole new paradigm. Yeah. So I started to break that down in two buckets. One, uh, the first one is trying to identify the magnitude of the reality of the problem, which has nothing to do with the solution. And that, that's the thing that I said, you try to quantify if you can. Um, and then the solution, if you, if you started there, you're right. You like, I'm not even in the right zip code to evaluate your solution if it's so brand new t- to me. Um, so that that's probably a little trickier because I tend to rely really heavily on rough prototyping to get people to react to new ideas. So I do see entrepreneurs jump to more refined prototyping too quickly. Um, and it's a, it's a fine balance because some products have to be refined in order for a person to have a reasonable reaction to it. But most of them, the concept itself can be illustrated roughly um, before you get into 3D printing or CAD drawing or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And there's a heck of a lot of truth that can come out there, which is a little counter to your point, frankly, because I, I, I do value that feedback an awful lot in terms of not falling in love with your idea until other people do, like strangers do. It's just a cheaper way to save yourself a world of pain if you stay in the kind of rough prototyping phase for as long as possible. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, to have the best reaction to those prototypes, you have to frame the problem, the point of view. Um, but I wouldn't neglect or un- underestimate the importance of that phase as well. The actual solution matters. Absolutely. And I'm in no way, shape or form uh, arguing that it doesn't. And I am a lover of amazing products. And when we, I forget who originally said it, but that, you know, um, breakthrough technology is indistinguishable from magic. And even if that breakthrough uh, technology is just a really cool application of a stool to go poop on, uh, it just, it's like, wow. And so uh, I in no way am sort of negating the product. So maybe let's move to there. You have a lot of people come to you with an idea. Maybe they have a rough prototype. Maybe they have a sketch. Maybe they have not very much. I, I was fascinated in your book. I think if I remember right, you said, uh, I think I bookmarked it. We look at 300 new product ideas a week at the Gromit. And I've worked with over 3,000 companies to help them get discovered. And so um, you've seen as many new products in the modern era as pretty much anybody on planet Earth, I would imagine. And so maybe help me um, understand from a product point of view, if I'm a creator, I'm an engineer, I'm an inventor of some kind, how should I think about creating legendary products? Um, I think, first of all... um I'm a designer, industrial designer, and I do have a deep belief in design thinking. True confessions, that idea became popular and it made no, I I didn't know what it meant. Like, I literally went to New York one day to hear a seminar on design thinking because it's super hot, right? It's even taught at business schools. And every time I read an article about it, it sounded like basically an article about breathing. Like how, how I'm oriented to the world as a designer is more unique than I realize. And the core parts of it are um, 
not assuming your point of view is the world's point of view, that you actually really listen to customers. You really are super curious about what people really care about and what they think and how they navigate a problem or a situation. That's what a great designer does and a great product developer does that as well. And I think a great entrepreneur for products tends to use pros in that area because most of us are not designers and most of us are not engineers. So they don't try to hack hack through that uh, on their own. They respect the professions that can help them and they're more accessible than ever to hire these folks. Thank you, internet. So um, great people do, do know what they know in terms of defining, say, the goals and parameters of the product, the boundaries, the bumpers that a designer has to work in. But they will hire a great designer when acquired, for sure. I, was, I hit that pretty hard in my book, actually. I don't think there are very many products that you can, can develop without a designer, industrial designer. I mean, they, they, they would be like stickers or something like if they, if they have a 3D uh, reality, there's probably going to need to be a 3D pro involved. Yeah. And I, one of the things I always wonder, uh, you know, I'm somebody, I have uh, a bunch of these, we now call them learning differences, you know, uh, ADHD and dyslexia. Yeah. And I, I found out a few years, fairly recently, I have this thing called executive function disorder, which explains yeah. why I can't parallel park. And so uh, I tend to be a very good, beta user of shit because like, for example, I can't use Uber, the, the app. I'm, I'm not, I can't figure out where the fuck, what the fuck, I can't figure it out. So if I'm going to use Uber, I literally have to call my wife. She calls the Uber and the, the driver shows up and says, are you Carrie? And I say, yes, because I can't, the, the app doesn't, it's too hard for me. Right. So that's sort of right, where, right. I, where I'm at. And so as somebody who has this, I roll all these things together. I call it dysphuclia. As somebody <laughs> who has dysphuclia, I, on a daily basis, Jules, have this experience called, did anybody at the company that makes this ever try to fucking use it? Yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I'll never forget, um, I was traveling on a plane with a colleague when I worked at a, a company, um, at Keds, a shoe company, and, and this was a product manager, and she, the designers reported to her but industrial design was brand new. She'd never heard of this concept. And I said to her, how do you think this tray in front of us, good, bad, or indifferent, landed here? How did this fork get formed, this chair? There's a, ideally a great designer behind everything. And when something fails, it's usually because there wasn't. You know, nobody, nobody took that step to do it. It's a little bit like when you're doing home renovation. Some people dive right to the contractor and start arm waving about what they want, right? And then they get something that's half-baked because the contractor is not an architect. And some people jump straight to the factory, straight to whatever. And, and believe me, if you go to a Chinese factory and get free design, you'll get what you paid for. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to be involved with Rob Burgess and the team at Macromedia in the late 90s, early 2000s as they were trying to pioneer this idea that ultimately uh, um, got called um, rich internet applications. And the whole mantra of the company, I helped them with their category creation and category design at the time. And the point of view we created, which was a radical one at the time, which was um, in software development up till that point, the sort of the cool kids worked on the data architecture, 
the workflow, um, uh, the integrations, uh, the architecture, the technology itself, and then the 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 and the business processes. That was obviously a huge thing. And then there was this thing people did at the end where the sort of folks over there that we don't really give a shit about do called the UI back then, the user interface, right? And Macromedia, with others, of course, pioneered this idea of UX. We've had Joe Pine on on this podcast, you know, the father of the experience economy. And I think he uh, has had a ton to do with thinking in this regard. I think the design thinking folks that have come from Stanford and IDEO and all of that is amazing stuff. And so I think we've made a lot of progress in the last 20 years in this regard. And so I guess my question is, um, is that where you would advise creators and inventors from a product point of view to start with that user experience, that design thinking piece, and then work back to how are we going to uh, build the product to meet the design experience sort of uh, that we want people to have? Or, or how, would you, what, how would you put it to them? Well, if I were getting started and this were not my competency, I would... I would play to my own strengths. Let's say I'm more the business person or, you know, the person with the, the insight for the opportunity. I, I think one of the biggest mistakes people make when they aren't familiar with a design thinking process or working with a UX person is to sort of uh, say something very vague and not give a lot of parameters or restrictions on the project because they're afraid of constraining creativity. But the opposite happens. If you give a great creative person bumpers, like here's what the product's target market is, most likely. Here's the pricing. Here are the uses where it really has to shine. Here's maybe the size or here's maybe the places where it will be sold. And here are the products we're going to displace. A normal sort of business like kind of brief. Creative people love that. And so you don't have to suddenly try to be in their heads and um, be them, you just need to tell them what success looks like from your seat and let them figure it out to get to those, those, those goals. Yeah. One of the things I've often found about this, you know, because I'm, I'm, I would call myself a creative person, but I'm not a designer any way, shape or form. Everything I know about design, I was taught by uh, Peggy Burke at 1185 and, and John Bielenberg. Uh, and, and, so one of the other ahas I've had with creative types of any time, any kind, whether engineers, product, UX designers, uh, marketers, whatever it is, I had this aha early on in my career as a CMO, which is if you hire Picasso, don't tell Picasso where to paint the boob. Just let them do their thing, right? And so this is the other question I have for you. As a creator, as an entrepreneur, as an engineer, as a product person, we were so involved with the creation of our stuff, but then we go to hire somebody in this, in this area to create what I would argue is, is of course, it's got to work. I'm not saying the architecture and the foundation and the material. I'm not saying any of those things are not important, but I think if you don't get UX, if you don't get design thinking right, then you don't get it right. That's my opinion. And so, but if you're hiring for that, how do you, on one hand, uh, sort of inject your gut instincts and your ideas about how this product should be, but at the same time, let Picasso do her job. I do think a lot of it comes back to that, that core brief as a CMO, you must've written a lot of them. I'll, I'll give you an example. Just last night, poor Drew, my partner, I'm picking on him a lot, but he's, um, he's developing a wine. Actually, he, he bought a little acre of, of, um, 
grapes in Mendoza and Argentina and the labels being designed. And last night we sort of had the realization he had commissioned a really beautiful piece of art. Um, but all the sort of core labeling stuff, like things you need to say legally about the wine were sort of layered on top of the art and it looked horrible. And, um, so I said, give the designer this direction, you know, strip off all those functional pieces and do a second label, you know, basically put all that stuff, almost like the, um, the tag you'd see in a museum for a piece of art, like take it off the art, let the art breathe. And he goes to his computer and starts designing it. Like he, he actually didn't listen to me at all. He just started doing it so he could show the designer what to do. And, and like, Oh my, like he showed me and my, I'm like, my eyes hurt. Like, don't even make me look at this. All you had to do was send the poor person a two line email. They could figure this part out. You didn't have to figure it out for them. Yeah. I think that's hard to do. And I have tried for uh, more years than I want to admit Jules to train myself to let, to let the legendary designers, the creative types, let them do their job, let them play it out. And, and, and have the courage to go with something that they, you know, my number one question when asking folks, particularly on anything that's remotely creative is before I see it, I like to ask the question, do you think this is legendary work? Oh, that's good. I want to know where their bar is. Yeah. One of my, my tips there, or it's not a tip, but one of my successes I've had is I often hire people who are at, um, um, it's going to be their first or second really large project in this area because they'll go that go so much further and, and they're not repeating anything. They've never done it before. So they're, they're not recycling anything. I love that. And in my corporate career, I worked for Meg Whitman and a bunch of companies and I often was, she was like, and is, you know, a, a much more analytical kind of ex Bain consultant person than I am. I'm more equal right brain left brain and I was often the translator like I knew we had a great meeting when she said to me afterwards when we were looking at creative work are you smoking dope jewels are you serious I'm like yeah because you know what this stuff's going to get so diluted in this corporate process we have to start out there and we'll get it to a place that's commercially viable maybe it's not today but if you don't start there, forget it. By the time all the suits, us, by the time we, we have a whack at it, we're going to have something that's completely unmemorable. It's so interesting you say that. Uh, my friend, John Bielenberg, the legendary designer, he was the first corporate designer to have an exhibition at SF MoMA. And he, he wrote the book, Thinking Wrong. Anyway, one of the things he says is, you can always take an outrageous idea and dial it back but you can't take a conservative idea and dial it up. Exactly. Exactly. So you like to start more out on the, uh, on the outer edge and, and, and let the suits water it. down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I do listen really hard to the creatives because usually in the first, um, you know, presentation, they, they're sort of already seeing where this idea could go and the rest of us might be a couple steps behind. So it's not that I always agree to their recommendation, but I'd say 90% of the time I do because they're going to be able to see, see more within the idea than anyone else in the room. Yeah. Now I know I don't have you for a ton of time today. Um, is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we wrap Jules? Um, 
Well, first of all, I really appreciate the conversation. It's super fun. I would say um, the thing that a lot of people don't realize is, is the advantages these small companies you work with have for innovation. The big, this is going to sound kind of generic, but it's, it's more true than ever that big companies are kind of Darwinian about their new product ideas. And it's for a rational reason in, in that they assume, you know, most of products are sold at retail, 93%. So that's a physical shelf space game. They assume if they introduce a new product, it's going to cannibalize something they already sell successfully. And that becomes really paralyzing, right? They never assume taking share. Well, guess what's happened? The little guys have been taking share like crazy. CPG, it's extreme. In grocery alone, 19% of share has been transferred to small brands in the last six months. I mean, just these are companies we never heard of. Uh, could you just say what you just said again so it registers in my database? One nine. 19% of market share has transferred from big brands to small brands in the last six years for food. That's insane, right? Because food, you know, you're going to put it in your body. And you are, you are deliberately, we are deliberately choosing companies we never heard of. Because these companies don't have marketing budgets for the most part. Not that they've, that they've really, you know really broken through in the way the big guys already have for years. And uh, you're saying, you know what? I'm going to take this chance on you. And it's usually because the product responds to a contemporary need, use, lifestyle that the big guys have have fallen asleep at the switch at and have competed on price and, you know, kind of propping up old brands for too long. It's amazing. I didn't know the number was that shocking. I'm, I'm, I'm um, very inspired by that. You know, we talked a little bit about beer. You see the incredible explosion in craft beer. Uh, I'm friends with the founders of the Verve Coffee Company, who you might have heard of. They're sort of the last independent, you know, craft coffee maker of size here in California. And and so there's all these uh, areas of, of food and beverage and so forth where these incredible brands have shown up. And I almost, I guess the question I want to ask you about this is, um, I think many of us have begun to have a bit of a distrust. You know, can we trust Kellogg's? Is there, is there too much sugar or crap in that? Or, you know, the major companies. And, and there's almost, it almost feels like it might be, at least in certain areas, um, flipping insofar as we trust uh, a no-name company, but one that presents itself as sort of sharing some of our values. And, you know, there's a huge farm-to-table thing and, you know, the quality ingredients and, you know, the growth of Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and sort of these more sort of, uh, you know, never tested on GMOs, all this stuff, right? We almost have a, um, an inclination today towards the up-and-comer who looks like they're doing things in a way that we uh, appeal to us. And, and we almost are developing a distrust with some of the major brands. Is, is that part of what's going on? Yeah, it was a, it was a um, founding premise of the Gromit because when we founded, the distrust was maybe going in slightly different directions towards Wall Street, towards our government, you know, that's, that we felt in the financial crisis let us down. But perennially, small business as a concept has more trust than large business. But the brand thing is new. This brand thing is new. It's, I call them, some people call them upstart brands. I call them the Instagram brands. You know, if you're active on Instagram, you're just flooded with better options in any category you demonstrate interest in. You've never heard of any of these companies. It's happening well beyond CPG. It's just that that 
industry is very well metrics compared to, say, swimsuits. Swimsuits is a specific example I'm giving you. There is no woman on the planet who wants to buy a swimsuit. It's never fun. I bought two swimsuits on Instagram. Swimsuits. Because the styles are legitimately radically different than anything I've ever seen in my whole life. Crazy, right? But a little company whose hurdle rate for the first year of sales might be $1 million or $5 million compared to an existing brand that needs 50 to $100 million. You know, the, 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 it's really the world's their oyster then at that point. Yeah, one of my favorite examples of this, uh, and we had him on the podcast, I've become a huge fan. His name is John McDonald, and he's the, uh, the founder of an outfit called Semi Handmade. And the category is a new category of, uh, I think he just calls them IKEA hackers. And here was the simple insight. And it happened, he was a frustrated actor and writer and director and so forth living in LA. Uh, and he took up carpentry to try to make money. And he started doing cabinetry and so forth. And a customer once said to him, hey, have you ever thought about doing custom front ends for Ikea backs? Because I guess uh-huh. with Ikea, you can buy them in pieces. And so this company, Semi Handmade, is now an incredibly successful Inc. 500 growing, fast growing company. Um, my wife's actually used them because uh, she's a home designer and builder. That's how I really got to know them. And, and they're just crushing because they saw this window, which is, hey, the IKEA stuff is great. It's just, you know, if you want something a little more special on the front end, the system works great, but they only have whatever options. And if you want something more custom and whatever. And so they, they saw this niche that was an unmet need. They began to evangelize it and they called the company semi-handmade because the fronts are handmade and the backs, of course, are IKEA. And to your point on Instagram, uh, one of the things that John shared with me is part of how they've grown is though they have a product that lends itself to photography. You take a picture of a beautiful kitchen and it sort of, quote unquote, can speak for itself. And people see this stuff on Instagram and bam, uh, it's been a big part of how they've grown the business. Great. That sounds great. I, I would say Instagram is the closest thing to um, helping these companies uh, in the world as to grommet. Like I, I haven't seen any other platform do some some measure of what we do it's exciting honestly how very cool anything else jules before we wrap um need to hop so okay i'll let let you you go go. i want to thank you for your work um you're clearly showing a path to inventors and entrepreneurs filling a giant hole and i also want to thank you for writing this wonderful book i hope lots of people read it i enjoyed it very much and i really appreciate the difference that you're making in the world Thanks, Chris. I appreciate your having me on. It's really great. Thank you. Stay legendary, Jules. (laughs) Well, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation uh, with Jules. I'm, uh, I'm so glad you were with me for it. Now, my friends at NetSuite are trusted by over 18,000 growth-oriented organizations. Chris Tamucci, the director of operations at Honeystinger, uh, who you might know, they're the folks that make those yummy organic uh, foods for athletes. I like them when I go skiing or um, uh, mountain biking, um, says that, quote, the biggest difference NetSuite has made for us is the ability to concentrate on our customers. NetSuite allows us to get the back office out of the way and lets us concentrate on our core mission, end quote. 
Now, look, isn't that what business leaders want? You don't want to have to worry about your core operations. You want to be able to focus on what matters. As a matter of fact, NetSuite allows you to do both because not only does NetSuite run the core operations of your business, NetSuite has incredible dashboards and analytics that can provide you with powerful insights as to what's going on with your customers. And um, at Honeystinger, they selected NetSuite over SAP and Microsoft Dynamics because NetSuite met Honeystinger's requirements for both flexibility and scalability. And believe it or not, they were able to deploy NetSuite in just 10 short weeks. And NetSuite is a lot more cost effective than you might think. Now, if you want to explore how you can focus on your customers and turbocharge your growth, my friends at NetSuite are offering you a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. Go to netsuite.com slash different, and there you can set up your growth review. That's netsuite.com slash different. All right. We would like to thank the awesome new book that I had a ton of fun reading. It's called How We Make Stuff Now by our friend and guest today, Jules Pieri. The amazing people at OneLifeFullyLive.org. This is a nonprofit that I've been involved with from the very beginning. Um, this outfit has tried to take all of the good personal development and training stuff, all of the good uh, financial planning stuff, and put it all together to help empower you to dream, plan, and live your best life. And because we're a nonprofit, we do it as close to free as we can, possibly can. Check out the number one, lifefullylive.org. Now, do you want to get back time? My friends at Bottleneck want to help you get back time with a virtual assistant. Check out bottleneck.online to discover the power of a virtual assistant today. That's bottleneck.online. And do you like coffee as much as I do? Mm -mm -mm. Verve Coffee is the official coffee of this podcast. And you can check them out in beautiful Santa Cruz, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Tokyo, and always at uh, vervecoffee.com. GrowWire.com. It's what legendary entrepreneurial people are reading. Check it out today, GrowWire.com. And if you want to get your leading thoughts on some top podcasts, visit my friends at Interview Valet at InterviewValet.com. And I hope you had a chance to check out the episode with my friends at Donors Choose. This is an extraordinary nonprofit helping to connect teachers uh, with people who want to give them a hand so those teachers can make a difference for uh, uh, children all around the country. So do it for the kids. Check out DonorsChoose.org. All right. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that this podcast clearly goes better with libations. You can always find us at Lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. If you must email us, send email to blackhole at lockhead.com. And you can check out my week social media game on Instagram and Twitter at Lockhead. Teach people to build legendary products. Tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. Uh, never forget, don't jog near a prison. Listen to Blue Rodeo. Remember, there's no stopping the Cretans from hopping. Only buy pasture-raised free-range eggs. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Richard C. Kelly, chairman of Pacific Gas and Electric. Sorry, Dick, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. It really means the world to me. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different. Follow your different.